Hello Van fans, welcome to another episode of VFF's Van Life Podcast. How are you all doing? It's Christmas week of course, so season's greetings to you all. I'm not going to go on about it because I think sometimes it is nice to have a little break from the Christmas madness. So I'm offering this as a Christmas free space for you. Thank you so much to everyone that's written to me. It really makes my day. I've had some absolutely hilarious van life confessions from you guys. You have not disappointed me. So please keep them coming. I'm really excited to share that with you. That is going to be absolutely hilarious. Um, They are pretty toilet heavy, as you can imagine. But that's cool, you know. That's life, isn't it? That's van life. Um, You get very acquainted with your poo and wee and things. Just again, quickly, the pet episode will be coming up soon, so please do get in touch with me with your pet stories. The email address is vffspodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to vffsvanlife.com and use the contact form there if you prefer. A lot of people did really enjoy the mini challenge from episode one. You might have noticed I haven't done any more mini challenge bonus features. I do have plans to continue doing that because that is a really fun part of the podcast. The reason I haven't done it recently will become clearer after next week. That brings me to next week's episode. So something very special is coming up next week which will show you just how far you can go when you get over your anxieties and your fears so I'm really really looking forward to sharing that with you again I don't want to ruin the surprise so I'm not going to tell you anymore but I just want to say do make sure that you tune in next week and have a listen because I think you'll really enjoy it so my guest for this week is Jean who also happens to be my mother. After inheriting some money, Jean decided to realise the dream of a lifetime and bought a 1989 Citroen Roma Home campervan. After using it in the UK, she decided to take a solo road trip to the south of France for a friend's birthday party. When Jean did her trip, she was so nonchalant about the whole thing that you'd think that she was off to the corner shop for a pint of milk. It didn't really sink into me at the time how amazing this was for a woman in her 60s to travel a thousand miles on her own. Since having a van and knowing how I feel about long road trips, I'm in awe of her bravery and strength taking a journey like this in her stride. We talk about the fantastic campervan facilities in France, the sat-nav revolution, her background in alternative therapy, and some of the colourful characters from my childhood. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's not too self-indulgent, don't worry, as I know sometimes podcast people get their parents on and it just becomes a bit of an echo chamber, but I hopefully I haven't done that. I try to keep it just as an interview, so um, I really hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is the interview with Jean. So it's another rainy day in Plymouth. I'm here at my mum's house to do our interview. So just rang the doorbell. 
Hi, Mum. Hello, darling. You okay? Yeah. How are you? I'm fine. Nice to see you. And you. Come in. It's horrible out there today. Oh, isn't it just? How's Bluey the budgie? Is he alright? Yeah, I've put him in the other room so he doesn't interfere with our recording. Oh, good. Let's get a bit of Bluey on the... How's he doing? Oh, he's listening to the radio. Hi, Bluey. How are you? Yeah, he's he's obviously microphone shy. Yeah. Right then, Mum. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you feeling good? I'm feeling good. <laughs> so, I really wanted to get you on this podcast because you had a camper van a little yes, while ago. Yes, I did. And you did more in your camper van than I have had the guts to do. So I really <laughs> wanted to sit down and talk to you. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background, just to start with? Right. My name is Jean. I'm 75. I live in Plymouth. I've got three wonderful daughters and three granddaughters. I've lived in Plymouth my whole life. I love Plymouth. We're close to the sea. We're close to the moors. We're close to towns if we want to be. And I just think it's a lovely part of the world. Tell me a little bit about when you got your camper van? Just after I retired, I was lucky enough to have a little lump of money. And so I realised a dream of a lifetime and I got myself a camper van with the plan in mind just being travelling around England, getting to know England a bit, being able to go and visit friends without having to disturb them because I had my home little home on my back. And what type of van did you have? Uh, It was a 1989... Roma home on a C15 van base, which is a real workhorse in France, the C15 van. And that's a Citroen? That's a Citroen C15, yeah. Very popular in France. Uh, I saw the van on eBay and I thought, oh my God, I can afford that. I rang up the person and without seeing it, I put £150 deposit on it to hold it for me. Drove down there and bought it sight unseen because... It was like mother, like daughter. <laughs> yes, of course we did that, didn't we? So you went down and bought it, sight unseen. Down in Cornwall, that was. And I was very lucky because I found, as I said, these forums, which were just so useful. But I also, when I was trying to kit out the van with the stuff that it didn't have, so I answered an advert on eBay, which was somebody at Plymouth, which is very close to Plymouth, and he was selling off the contents of a caravan for a friend of his. Uh, oh, so there quite a few things I bought from there. And then he rang me up and said, oh, and I've also got this and I've got that. So I, I got so much from him. And in the end, he was ringing me up and not charging me anything for the things that he'd found. <laughs> he was really impressed at what I was doing because I was full of it at that time. You know, oh, just that's got nice, it. yeah. Um, and he... He, he gave me a lovely uh, write-up on eBay, you know, saying what an adventurous lady I was, how brave I was, which is what a lot of people said. But uh, Aww, that's lovely. I didn't think I was brave. I was just getting on with it. Then I spent um, about 12 months getting to know the van, joining various forums and support groups, which were an absolute font of knowledge, with all the little things you'd never think of yourself when you haven't done it before. I kitted out the van, 
Well, it was very well kitted out, but I liked my nice knives and forks and plates and spoons and saucepans. <laughs> I wanted it all to be as nice as it could possibly be. Did you take the silver cutlery with you? Yeah. Is that what you <laughs> Nice. <laughs> well, somebody told me that they probably thought I was so healthy because I ate off silver cutlery and silvers and antibacterial things. So I, I thought I don't want to risk not taking it to France with me because that's where I ended up in France. Uh, so I took it with me, yes. <laughs> so you went to France in your van oh. by yourself. You drove all um, the way from here to the south of France at I the did. age of... Yes, 63. Four, I think I was, yeah, 64. Well, the the thing that got me going there instead of touring the United Kingdom, like I'd always thought I would, was the fact that a friend of mine, it was his birthday, he lived in France, and another friend of mine said, well, why don't you take your camper van and have a bit of an extended tour? So I thought, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. And then I went to a family wedding, and one of the family was telling me about how he couldn't have managed to get there in time without a sat-nav, because he was flying from Australia, landing and the wedding was on the same day so he bought himself a sat nav so I thought that's a good idea I have no sense of direction but with a sat nav maybe I can go to France so I researched it I discovered that I could get insurance for five months so I thought right I'll go for five months then that was the decision made (laughs) I think um, the lack of a sense of direction is something that I have inherited. Yeah. I can't trust my own instinct about whether I need to turn left or right. Sorry, yes, you've got that from <laughs> me. I have no idea. Where did you cross over? So I drove up to Dover, uh, went across on the ferry to Calais, drove a few miles and then got my head down to have the sleep because you can't sleep on the boat. And off I went. What I actually did was I plugged my final destination into the sat-nav and then when I fancied going off the road and exploring little signs that I saw, I always knew I could I would find my way back. You know, there's a lot of people, including myself, that a sat-nav has always been an option. Since I got a car, I had a sat-nav. So before sat-navs, you just got the atlas out and hoped for the best. Yeah, basically, and quite often didn't get the best. Yeah. (laughs) It was revolutionary. Opened the world, basically, to me. I remember when I passed my driving test, I got a sat-nav and it had all the European destinations on and I programmed it to show that it's like this massive big castle in Germany. It's really famous. It's what they based the Disney castle on. And I was like, oh my God, I can just go there right now. I've got this sat nav. It's going to tell me how to go there. And I was like, wow, that's so amazing. I haven't been there yet. That was. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was your destination then, your ultimate destination? My ultimate destination was a little village called Marseillette in the southwest of France, uh, near Carcassonne. So, I gave myself two months to travel down through France, which is amazing. They've got such good facilities for camper vans, air de service and the stop and park it doesn't cost you a fortune. It was it was brilliant. I met a friend at the uh, airport and drove down with her uh, and then took her back to the airport and then my other friend, we were going to drive back home together because it was after the party and I knew this is a very old friend of mine, I've known her for years and she can't fold things nicely. <laughs> oh, no. and I used to have an over 
the driver's part. What do they call them? Those. I don't know, actually. Yeah. Cab? No. Don't know. It's good, but I used to keep everything in there beautifully folded, and I knew that she wouldn't do it, and I knew that would make me so angry, and I didn't want to fall out with her, so I made a special cover that, that uh, draped over it so that you couldn't see the mess. I was quite happy then. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. I don't like it when anyone else is in my van because I'm like no you're messing up the system I've got a system and you're just ruining it well you know where everything is and that's what's the joy of it you're you're totally in control and then somebody walks in and moves something it's not good not good they have to behave themselves when there's one person in a van I think it's probably a hundred times easier than when there's two people I think just having another person trying to be comfortable in that small space is probably not easy quite difficult (laughs) but we've always both been the kind of woman that likes to go it alone I think in life (laughs) that's probably another thing I've inherited from you so do you have any experiences from that journey that stand out in your mind as quite memorable yes there was one occasion when I arrived in this town, so I was getting close to bedtime, it was getting dark and I was getting tired and I saw a campsite on my right, so I drove in, could see all the people parked around the edge, that's fine, I'll just stay here and I'll, it'll, I'll be okay. So I went to sleep, I was woken up by somebody knocking on the van door, thought, oh my oh goodness my me. I opened it up and I'd only stopped in the middle of a gypsy encampment. <laughs> That's the only time in the whole trip that I was scared. Uh, a, a few occasions, like when I got parked and I thought, how the hell am I going to get out of here? A couple of nice men came up and lifted me, you know, <laughs> bounced me out. Now I have a camper van, I am completely in awe of the fact that you did that because I'm every time I want to go away somewhere... I just go to Cornwall because <laughs> it's like the safe place. Did it take you time to get brave enough to like do a bigger road trip? Or Well, I've always liked driving, so I was visiting friends in Wales and Wells and uh, around near Somerset, around there, I've got a friend who lived in a field there. <laughs> and so I was used to doing those sort of trips. And sometimes just going out for the day and being able to stop exactly where you want because it's beautiful beautiful scenery and make yourself a cup of coffee and you know just enjoy it and not have to think oh I want to go home because I need a drink or food or the toilet or whatever you can just stay there so you said that you've always enjoyed driving yes I love driving where do you think that stemmed from well my father was always interested in cars eventually started his own business with cars just outside Plymouth is a place called Yelverton which used to have an aerodrome and so you could drive there without having a license or anything. So I learned to drive there in a little A35 when I was 12 years old. No way. Yeah. <laughs> 12? Yeah. Because I'd, I'd always, always, I just loved, loved driving. Loved driving. I used to sit on my dad's lap when I was a little girl and be doing the steering, which be doing but uh, there were this was fewer the 50s. cars on the, on the roads <laughs> those days when I passed my driving test my father came round with a pound coin to let me take the test again it was a pound at the time but I passed first time uh, just after my birthday how old were you I was 17 and so he bought me a little Morris million uh, which is a Morris thousand when they'd reached the million mark 
they made a hundred or a thousand, I don't know, Morris thousands that were painted lilac. <laughs> and so my father bought me one of these and I was sure it was just so he could keep an eye on me. He'd always know where I was in this flipping lilac van. Yeah, lilac car, it wasn't a van. I remember you telling me that people would call him and be like, Hi, yeah, I've seen your daughter's car outside so-and-so's house. It's been there since yesterday <laughs> evening and it's still there, so I just wanted to let you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sneaks in Plymouth. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anywhere in the UK that you went to that you have particular memories of? Or Yes, I went to Heptonstall to a friend's birthday party. Heptonstall is a little town on top of the hill above Hebden Bridge. And that was a lovely trip because the countryside around there is just beautiful. Is that Yorkshire? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was just fabulous, long distance views. A bit like Devon, but uh, colder and barer. It's a really different feel, isn't it, when when it's land like that? It's like a bleak beauty rather than... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, But like you say, it's bleak beauty. It all has its uh, impact. When I came back from a three-month road trip across the States in Canada... Which I would never have been brave enough to do. <laughs> but that wasn't in a van. But, yeah, I guess... I think I was braver back then. But um, I remember I decided when I was away that I wanted to look into maybe moving to Liverpool to do a music degree. And you were going to pick me up from the airport. And I think I called you and was just like, can we go to Liverpool when you pick me up? And you were kind of like, okay, fine. Like, (laughs) Um, It's probably on the way. I didn't have my sat-nav with me at the time. (laughs) Yeah. So um, you picked me up in your Roma home and we drove to Liverpool as an aside, it turned out to be John Lennon's 70th birthday celebration. So I went to the uni to have a look around and then ended up going to the Cavern Club and like going to John Lennon's birthday party, which was really strange. But that meant that we ended up staying the night there. And I remember that we stayed right on the, I don't know if you'd call it the harbour front or the river front, I suppose. Yeah, right on the river, right underneath the, the live building. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea we'd be able to, but uh, nobody came along and got rid of us, did they? No, and like we had no trouble or anything. And like actually looking back now from the perspective of having had like two vans, I would never have the guts to just be like, let's just park here. (laughs) I just think that's amazing. That's actually what I love about your attitude. You're just like, what's the point in worrying about it? until it actually happens there's really no point and I think that's such a good attitude for traveling because a lot of people and definitely including myself really suffer with the anxiety of like oh no what's gonna happen or something's gonna happen and it's gonna be really scary and your attitude is just like let's just do it and we'll deal with whatever happens as it comes along I think basically the only things that could go wrong in a scary sort of way is with people and I think the majority of people are decent people and also they don't really care about what someone else is doing everyone's kind of thinking about themselves there's no one just waiting to get you (laughs) I mean maybe very rarely that happens but that could happen anywhere 
Okay, so today I'm telling you guys about Fetcher Chocolates. Fetcher Chocolates is an independent female-owned business that sells luxury handmade vegan chocolate. I've been eating vegan chocolate for years and nothing comes close to Fetcher Chocolates. It tastes amazing and it looks beautiful. It really is the perfect gift for special occasions and something that everyone can enjoy. It's dairy, gluten and soy free, so great for allergy sufferers, but also for anyone. I mean, this chocolate is so good, you don't have to be vegan to enjoy it. There are classic flavours such as milk chocolate mousse and golden salted caramel, as well as these special Christmas flavours, gingerbread, milk chocolate orange and white chocolate candy cane. I loved the blackberry mousse bar with homemade bramble jelly and real blackberries. I'm definitely going to be getting that one again. It smelt incredible and it tasted so good. When I received my order, I was really impressed with the beautiful presentation. The colours are brown and black with a really classy gold logo and the packaging can all be recycled as paper, so no plastic in sight. Fetcher also plants trees to offset the packaging, so it's an eco-friendly choice as well. When I want to buy a friend a beautiful, delicious gift, I just go to fetcherchocolates.com and I get them a gorgeous gift that they will love. Fetcher Chocolates are offering listeners of this podcast 10% off with promo code VFF. Enter promo code VFF at checkout to receive a 10% discount on your order. Yep, that's 10% off. So go on, go to fetcherchocolates.com and get that chocolate in your life. You will not regret it. In the days before Satnav, I lost my way, so I stopped on some busy main road in London because I could see that there were houses over this fence. So I hopped over the fence and went and knocked on a door to ask for directions and was kindly given them, told them. Later that night, when I went to stay with my sister-in-law, she couldn't understand why it had taken me so long to, to get up. I told her I'd stopped to get directions and I was apparently in the middle of one of the most crime-infested areas in London. She said I wouldn't have dreamt of stopping there, let alone hopping over a fence and knocking on somebody's door. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you pull things to you. If you worry, there's always something to worry about. Yeah, I'm definitely getting braver. I have done things in the last few weeks just with regards to where I stay that I would never have been brave enough to do before. So I'm definitely developing. Good, good. I'm hoping that that will just keep going and before long I'll be driving up to Scotland or, you know, without worrying about it. At the moment that just seems so far away. You've kind of already talked about what you loved about your van. Is there anything that you found personally difficult or that you struggled with? The thing that I struggled in the van with was always when there was somebody else in the van with me. For example, when Sue wouldn't fold up a or who wouldn't have folded up her towels. Named and shamed everyone, it was Sue. Did you get that? (laughs) When I was on my own it was great because I could keep one side of the van made up as a bed and the other side being where I sit and eat and so on. When there were two people in the van, we had to make up a bed every night, which I didn't particularly like although I'm well known to be quite a scatty person with housework and I'm a bit untidy and everything when it came to my van I liked it absolutely everything in its place and perfectly tidy 
Was there anything else that you really loved about having a camper van? I loved the fact that when I was in France, it attracted so much attention because it was on a C-15 base and people were fascinated by it because they recognised the nose and then they'd look and they'd... So I had so many people coming up and saying, whoa, what's this, what's this? And used to ask them to come in and... He'd have a look around. It, it was a brilliant way of getting to know French men in particular, not that the ones to know. Oh, yeah, men. the truth is coming out now. <laughs> well, men are the ones who are interested in vehicles, aren't they? They're well, but they're Oh, white. you can't say that on this podcast. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> no, there'll be, be a lynch mob outside whenever they're interested it. in the van because it was a workhorse. It wasn't supposed to be a holiday thing. Yeah. Traditionally speaking, yeah. men, no, I'm not saying it because I don't. Traditionally, <laughs> I'm not that's... saying it on a female van life podcast that men like vans. I'm just not going to say that. Like, <laughs> did you ever get lonely when you were driving on your own in France? No, I didn't get lonely on the roads. I just got a bit fed up with people expecting me to speed up hills, which. Uh, it was a bit impossible in such an old van. I had a few incidents climbing up hills with oh, people, really? people behind. Oh, really? What happened? Yeah. On our way home, I came off the by-roads to get onto a payage to make up some time. Uh, unfortunately, when I got on it, the motorway was under repair and there was only one lane clear. And there were people who wanted to overtake me because it was a motorway and they used to going fast. And I'd come to a hill and if I could get to 20 going up a hill, that was working hard at some of those hills. But the people behind just didn't understand and they'd keep beeping and tooting. And we had one man scream past us. He'd been honking and driving right up my tail the whole time. And he went past us and it was on the way home because the pair of us were saying, what an idiot, look at him. And about five miles down the road, we saw him on the side of the road. His cute little sports car was smoking like mad from the bonnet. And we were so pleased. So we waved to him as we drove past 20 miles an hour. <laughs> Got a good look. Yeah. Hello, least, how are you doing? We were moving and you're there broken down. Why do people do that? I love that when you get like um, a BMW right up your ass and then they overtake you and you're like oh hi at the next red traffic light (laughs) that really helped you didn't it in your journey it's pathetic isn't it so funny um no points for the gender of the people that usually do that no Um, (laughs) we won't mention them not at all that's not what we do here we just have a heavy subtext but we don't (laughs) we don't name and shame Now, this is a sad part of the story. I want to ask you to tell our listeners what happened to your van. Unfortunately, my van died. I was waiting at some traffic lights one day and they took such a long time changing. And I know some traffic lights, if you reverse backwards, you go over a trap and it changes the lights. So I shot backwards because there was nobody behind me in my head, but there was actually somebody behind me. So I reversed straight back into this car and crushed through the whole back of the van, which was fiberglass. So So it it didn't die, it was murdered. It was murdered. (laughs) It was murdered. Stationary at a traffic light. You just reversed into someone and and wrote off your van. At speed. At yes. speed. <laughs> <laughs> the annoying thing 
it was. It didn't do anything to their car. How embarrassing as well to have to tell it people. Was. This like... bloke got out of the car and said, what are you Jeff, are you doing? Like, I was just going to say, I was reversed to try to change the lights. So I thought, I'd better not say that. I was trying to communicate with the traffic lights. <laughs> so I just said, I'm sorry, I, I thought I was in first gear. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, that's so sad. I remember that. I thought, oh, if I can get the money for the insurance, I can maybe fix it, but... They decided it was a write-off, so I investigated. I could get a new door, I could get somebody to repair it, but it would cost more than the insurance company were going to give me, and that would have been it then. I had no money left for the MOT that was coming up and all that sorts of stuff. I, I took a film of it when they came to tow it away, the breaker's yard, so off it went. I cried when it went down the hill. A couple of years later, I discovered that you could look online and find out whether your car's got its MOT or what have you. So I went on the site and I was checking this out and I thought, I wonder what they do when cars are written off. So I put in the registration number of the van and it had had two years MOT. It had got back on the road about six weeks after it had gone. So I was I was really upset, but I was pleased really that somebody was enjoying the van. Six weeks? Yeah. So... What do you make of that then? Because someone came to look at it and told you this is 100% a write-off and you can't repair it without it costing, you know. So what do you think happened? Do you think someone invested into it? Somebody who knew what they were doing because it's it's like all these things. The labour is the big cost, isn't it? So if you're doing it yourself, you can get it done. Like I said, I was really sad, but I was really pleased to know that it was still on the road and probably loved being MOT'd. Yeah. It's a perfect size vehicle because you don't have to have two vehicles. You can drive it around town. I saw one yesterday, actually. Did you? Yeah, in the car park. It was a bit newer than your one, but um, yeah, just in a car park right in the city centre. No problem at all with parking and height restrictions or anything like that. And I remember it was such a roomy vehicle, like inside. You could stand up in the, what would you call it, the footwell. Yeah, the footwell at the back. You could stand up full height and do cooking or washing dishes and then you just could sit in the sitting area with loads of headroom really comfortable really nice quality windows with blinds with like fly screens and Yeah. yeah it was lovely i had a funny incident at bridgewater car park once i drove in to go into the underground car park or the multi-story car park and you know they have these chains hanging from the entrance so as I go under I felt them knock against the top I thought oh gosh look good job they were on but it didn't register that actually they're there telling you that the next one is going to be that height and it's going to be solid or that the ceiling's that low (laughs) so I drove down to the car park I thought oh my god I can't get in I'm too high to go in the car park so I had to find somebody to reverse back out of this long road that took me down to the car park. I had to go and find somebody to stop the traffic. By the time I'd found them, traffic had come in behind me and everybody oh else had God. to reverse back as well. It was so embarrassing. Oh, my good God. <laughs> so the final thing that I wanted to talk to you about was a little bit about the people that have definitely influenced me in my life to be a bit more of a crusty hippie than I might have been if I hadn't met them. (laughs) So this would be the long-haired hippie men that surrounded you like bees round a flower. (laughs) 
Um, I don't know, as I was a child, I don't know if there were any romantic um, dalliances or whatever, and I'm not going to ask you about it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, there were lots of alternative, new agey kind of guys. I especially remember Pete, and he had a big van, didn't he? I yeah. don't really remember, but... His was an ambulance, a converted ambulance, which meant it had a lift in the back so he could pop his motorcycle in the back and oh, wow, lift it okay. up and put it in. He had a field in Somerset, Langport in Somerset, and he took his van and lived on the field and grew some salads and stuff for the local markets. Yeah. He used to sell tapes. Oh, yes, he used to push his pram around. He used to illicitly record. He, he was down with the kids, so he knew which music was what, and he used to record it, get it on CDs and go into Bristol with his pram and a sound set, sound system on it and play these CDs. It was cassette tapes, it wasn't CDs. Oh, yeah, it was yeah, cassette it was tapes, cassettes, wasn't yeah. it? Yes, of course, you forget, you see. So that was Pete, and then I remember Raymond, who was like leather jacket, long hair again, bit of a herb toker kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of them. He changed his lifestyle after leaving the army uh, because he left school and he was fighting in Libya, I think, at the time. There's national service. He was a soldier in Libya. He said, 18, it was great. He said, rushing around the sand dunes with a machine gun in your hand, real man stuff. But um, it soon, when he left, it, it affected him. He changed his lifestyle. He changed his whole lifestyle to be peace, love, and rock and roll and all that sort <laughs> of stuff. Yeah. Then there was Min. Min had... A very alternative lifestyle. Him and his wife went to Portugal, uh, bought a small plot of land there to live off the land. In fact, he was an advocate of legalisation of cannabis and he managed to get a slot on Plymouth Radio to put forward his case. And he said, oh, record it for me so I can listen to it when I get back. So I recorded it for him and every other word was like, um, uh, yeah, like, uh, uh, you know, you know, like, uh, so he didn't <laughs> sound at all a good advocate for the fact that oh, cannabis no. did no harm at all. So that's just a small selection of <laughs> <laughs> the kind of people that were what I perceived as the kind of people that were just totally mainstream in my mind. I didn't really realise that they were on the fringes of society, but there we go. So thanks for talking about them. That's great. When I was a child... You were like a silk-wearing aromatherapist. You've always been a therapist, haven't you? Yes. So I didn't become a therapist until I was 40. Well, my partner and I had a small business, or building business, and I seemed to spend my life chasing money to pay the bills, which was awful. It's like begging for money. So when my partner and I split up, I decided no longer would I be controlled by money. I just didn't want to be controlled by money. So I trained to be a therapist. Um, I trained in aromatherapy and reflexology. 
I preferred reflexology because aromatherapy was just people wanting to be pampered and I was after helping and healing people. And then a couple of years later, I discovered a therapy called EFT, which some people might have heard of and called the short version. People call it tapping, really. And I found it such a marvellous therapy that that's what I concentrated on. And you were like probably one of the first people in this country to train as an EFT practitioner. I was actually very lucky that I trained under the originator of the therapy, Gary Craig. He came over to England, um, to Bolton or Burnley or somewhere beginning with a B. And I've got a picture of myself with him, which I'm very proud Mm. of. Grinning from ear to ear. Yeah, he he was a marvellous, marvellous man. And EFT is, I can say, having witnessed the power of it, can be so effective for anxiety it can be effective for physical or emotional negativity and well you know i'm not the expert why don't you say yeah well the the byword of it is that the cause of all negative emotion is a disruption in the energy system eft straightens them out and smooths out the passages of energy through yourself very similar to acupuncture but without the needles you're just tapping on acupressure parts and you wrote a book about EFT and if anyone wants one (laughs) she's got a few copies in the house so please do get in touch I'm really sure that you might be happy to even yeah yeah send them out to anyone that would like to learn a bit more about it absolutely absolutely I wouldn't mind a few stamps but other than that yes absolutely because I think it is a therapy which needs to be spread and and become more more common in in its uses so i think we can probably wrap up now if you're happy yeah. if yeah. there's anything else you'd like to add before no, we... i don't think so yeah any do you want to say anything nice to me or no no, no. <laughs> nice try cat nice try i just wanted to get something on tape you know <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on to my podcast my pleasure darling. as a most honorable guest <laughs> We've got some plans to go away together in yes. the camper van. Yes. With coming up in the next few weeks. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you more about that. And hopefully I will record a little bit of our trip if you're happy yeah, for that. And we'll have a little um, bonus feature for the listeners to listen to when we come back. Well, thank you so much, Jean. Mummy. <laughs> Louis is now taking his place back, pride of place, in the living room where he was shunned out while we did the interview. If you'd have been as quiet as this, we wouldn't have had to move you. There you go. No, he's not going to say anything, is he? <laughs> this is literally the loudest bird who ever lived, and now he's not saying anything. <laughs> Don't work with animals and children, that's what they say. <laughs> So there you go. That was Jean, my mother. I hope you enjoyed the interview. As she said, if you are interested in learning a bit more about EFT, just send me a message and we can get a book to you. Now it's time for the bonus feature for this episode, my trip to Cornwall. Hope you enjoy it.
I have been to Cornwall this week. I went for a little holiday. I live in Devon, so obviously it's right on my doorstep. So I had no excuse really but to go and explore. So I didn't really make a plan about where I was going to go. I just went with the flow and decided on a daily basis where I was going to go, which actually I love to do when I'm traveling in a van. I went to some really lovely beaches. I spent most of my time walking along the coastal path and swimming in the sea. So I felt super refreshed and relaxed. I really lucked out with parking spots. I found a couple of great places to stay. Um, One place I stayed actually had a toilet block which had running water and a toilet facilities that were open 24 hours. So that was absolutely fantastic. So the first place that I went to was Corsand, which is a little village. It's kind of two villages in one. There's King Sand and Corsand. They're both right on the sea. I assume that they were fishing villages at some point. They are now basically holiday home villages. I'm not sure of the exact statistics, but I'd imagine at least 50% of the houses there are holiday homes. So it is quite a touristy place, but it's a lovely little beach and it has beautiful clear water. Unfortunately, when I went there, there was a massive gale going on. So it was so windy, the sea was just muddy brown and it was not inviting at all. So I didn't actually go swimming. I did stay there overnight. I wouldn't say I had a good night's sleep. It was so windy. The van was just rocking like anything. So the next day I decided to keep on driving and I ended up in... A place that I've never been to before. It's kind of close to Polperro. There are a few beaches there that are like National Trust beaches. So the first beach that I went to was called Lantic Bay. This one was a gorgeous pebble beach which had beautiful clear water. So I was looking at all the people on the beach and I was thinking, why aren't they in the sea? What's going on here? When I got down to the water, I found out the reason they weren't going swimming. It was so windy that it was like getting sandblasted. <laughs> the wind was absolutely battering this sand onto anyone that was close to the water. So it was really painful, but I just kind of ignored it and just decided to get in the water anyway, which I'm really glad I did. Yes, I can wash with a flannel and soap in my van, but it's not the same as just like diving into the cold water and just feeling so clean when you come out. There was a place nearby, another beach, Lantivit Beach, something like that. It was very much the same thing, very beautiful. So I went there, went in the sea, and I decided then to go for a walk later that day. So I started to walk from the car park I was staying in, and I bumped into this old Cornish man who told me that the way he was walking was to a small fishing village called Pole Ruin. So I decided I would walk that way. I actually ended up walking with him for about half an hour. We just discussed our lives and just chit chat really. It was really nice. It was a nice sunny evening and it was just nice to have a bit of company because sometimes it can be a bit lonely obviously traveling alone in a van. 
I kept on walking and I eventually got to Pol Ruin. So Pol Ruin didn't blow my mind, but it was a nice walk anyway. The last place I went to was Lu, which was actually a bit of a shock after spending all my time in deserted beaches and things. It felt like a real party atmosphere. It was actually super busy, which I was quite surprised at. No one seemed to be socially distancing, which I thought was disappointing because most of the people there were definitely from up north or, you know, they were on holiday. And I did feel slightly concerned about that, but I made sure that I did what I felt was right and kept my distance. I had some fish and chips, as you do. Well, I had chips, I don't actually eat fish. And uh, yeah, just had a nice time there and then made my way back to Plymouth. Thanks for listening to VFF's Van Life Podcast. If you want to write to me, it's vffspodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.